Well, despite what it says in your booklet, today's reading is from Romans chapter 6, 1 to 11, but the verses are correct. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Frio Church. Thank you, Alan. Uh, As Andy introduced, my name is Silas. Uh, Lee has asked me to speak this morning while he's off jet-setting to LA and back in 96 hours. Is that, he's trying to break a record or something? Uh, I have spoken here a couple of times before. You might know me better for my healthy love for Birkenstocks. Um, uh, Lee is, uh, he's asked me to share from Romans this morning. So we've just heard that um, read. We're continuing in a series called The Resurrection Life. Uh, and today, the sermon title is A New Outcome. Just before we dig into this Romans passage, I'll get you to have a look at the scripture reading and skip down to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is one of those verses when uh, you hear it read at church, the preacher gets up and says it. We're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Everybody nods, there's a few amens, there's a yeses around the audience. But as you're kind of nodding and agreeing, there's a little bit of you that says, whoa, there's still a lot of sin in me that's not dead. But I'll, I'll keep nodding, I'll keep nodding. There's a lot of sin in me that's still tempting me. There's a lot of sin that's still hurting. Sin is still around. See, even after we become a Christian, sin is still there. So what is this sin that Paul is talking about, this sin that we're meant to be dead to. To help us understand Romans 6, we're going to have to stretch ourselves out a little bit uh, through some other Romans chapters to really get into what Paul is teaching us. So if you've got your Bible, perhaps keep it open to chapter 6, but be ready to jump forward a couple of pages as we go through a bit of a guided tour through Romans 5 all the way through Romans 8. Uh, Usually people with the Bible opened up on their phone, are quicker to get it 
the verses, a uh, bit of an advantage there, but I think since we're just staying within Romans, if you've got a physical Bible, I think you might be performing a little better this morning. Okay, what shall we say then? Chapter 6 starts with this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? To understand this question, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit to chapter 5 to figure out what Paul's talking about. We've just come off the back of five chapters where Paul is hammering home the grace of God. That we aren't saved by what we can do, but by accepting what God has done for us. The grace of God, and as Stephen, who spoke last week, taught us that grace is receiving something good that we don't deserve. Paul teaches that sin was brought into the world by Adam. Adam disobeyed God. Adam chose his own desires rather than following his Creator's command. And this sin has been passed on from generation to generation all the way to us today. It's a sin that we also commit. As we live in a world of individuals who are constantly choosing their own desires over God's instruction. And therefore, sin separates us from God and it condemns us to death. We stand condemned before a perfect and holy God. So in chapter 5, we hear of a new Adam. So let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. One act of disobedience equals sin and death. One act of obedience equals righteousness and life. I'll say that again. One act of disobedience is sin and death. One act of obedience equals righteousness and life. So before we've got Christ, we're separated from God because of that sin in us. The sin we're born with, the sin we inherit, the sin we commit every day. The sin of living for our own self and our own desires. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's no amount of good deeds that we can do to right our wrongs, our imperfection. But one man's obedience, one man's perfect obedience, many will be made righteous. So it's Christ's act of righteousness, Christ's act of obedience that conquers sin and death for us. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This message erupted through the world in the first century. Saved by grace, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Paul tries his best to eliminate any room for misinterpretation that the church in Rome might have. What saved by grace means. His rhetorical question is from the start of chapter 6 here, is responding to what he's just said in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, if we have a look at them. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You think there's a lot of sin in the world? Well, Paul says there's even more grace. 
There's enough grace for all of us, for the worst things we've done, for the worst people who've lived the lives furthest away from God. There's enough grace for all of us. Are we to continue to sin so grace may abound? Paul's rhetorical question clarifies this, doesn't it? No, doing more sin doesn't increase grace. Grace came from righteousness, not from sin. That kind of logic is like if you get pulled over for speeding by a police officer and then they let you off without giving you a fine. You go, oh wow, that was nice. I think I'm going to do some more speeding just so I can experience some more generosity from our gracious law enforcers. It's just not the logic that we get through. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Let's just reflect on some of the language that Paul's using here in this passage, uh, chapter 6, 1 to 11, that we've had read. The first thing that jumps out to me is the amount of times we read death and life. Death and life. It's about 10 times in your reading that you'll hear this juxtaposition. For a moment, let's just think about the weight of that language. What does that really mean? Paul's not just talking about a makeover here. He's not talking about taking out the trash or or a career change. This is death and life. When I started wearing Birkenstocks, I didn't say I'm dead to all other footwear and alive in Birks. We, we don't talk like this. We don't start something new like a diet or a new job and say we're dead to everything else. We, we rarely talk so drastically like that. Some of you might have said that the Dockers are dead to me a couple of times, but you'll, you'll be back this afternoon watching the Derby as they try and clinch the first win in the new stadium. This language is the most extreme language we can come up with as mortal beings, isn't it? It's the most extreme contrast, death and life. But this is what Paul uses, and he uses this because this is exactly what Christ did. We're dealing with a life and death experience here, and it's a foundation of our Christian faith. When we see or hear of someone who has given their life to Christ, we don't always quite see the same stark contrast as we might expect. The difference between Christ laying in the tomb and Christ standing out of the tomb is pretty clear-cut. No pulse, pulse, laying, standing, dead, alive. But the difference between us before we ask Christ into our heart compared to what it's like afterwards is often a little bit less obvious. So why does Paul go on about comparing us to Christ dead and Christ alive? And why isn't our change a little bit more extreme? Let's look at chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The word I want to point out there is slave. To be a slave means you serve your master. That what you're a slave to has power over you. That you live for nothing else but that which has that power over you. There's now a difference in who we serve. Uh, We'll be going through a call and response. We'll be going through a call and response a little later, through um, one of the Heidelberg Catechisms, uh, written back in the 1500s. This is a series of questions and answers uh, that help us understand our faith. Uh, And the first question 
we actually sung about uh, in our second song. And the question goes like this. What is our only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. I am not my own, but I belong to Jesus. As we die to our old self, we're no longer our own, no longer living for ourselves, but we're alive to God in Christ Jesus as we live for Him. The sin Paul is talking about when he says we are dead to sin, it's the sin that separates us from our Creator. The extreme change you're looking for is our status before God. We are alive to Him and you've got to be alive to have a relationship with the living God. So, we've heard about the grace of God. But what about all that sin that's still in our lives? That day-to-day sin, the sin that tempts us, the things we do wrong, the things that try and pull us away from our Creator? Whilst we're still on earth and in these bodies, sin is still around even though we're saved. Now, we've gone back to Romans 5, so keep your Bibles handy because we're going to flip forward to Romans 7. Uh, And I often think of this passage as uh, the Bible's best tongue twister. So we're in Romans 7, chapter 15, and we'll go through a couple of verses there. I'll see how fast I can read it. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I, have that no- for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You can go home and see if you can read that any faster. Paul isn't ignoring our day-to-day sin. In fact, he himself acknowledges he still does wrong. And this is the Apostle Paul, you know? He tells us we are dead to sin, the sin that separates us from God, but he also tells us that sin still reigns in our mortal body. We are still heavily affected by sin. How can it be so? How can we be dead to sin but also so affected by it. Now, outside of just preparing talks to do at Frio, uh, I work as a physio in a hospital, uh, and I have had the unique role of working with patients who are undergoing a lung transplant. So our role as a physio is maintaining their physical strength, their mobility, their fitness, keeping their chest as clear as possible whilst they await their transplant. And no one knows when the next organ donation will be available. So these patients can often get right to the end of their disease progression as they wait in hope for new lungs, right to the point where they're needing litres and litres of oxygen just to survive, people caring for them, helping them with their personal care, their short walks. And not all of them receive new lungs before the disease is too far down the track and they pass away before new lungs become available. For those fortunate enough to receive a lung transplant, the journey's not over there. The journey is not so simple. They don't just receive their new lungs, bounce up and out of bed, run down to the local park, kick the footy, walk their dog. 
They go to the intensive care unit. They're often requiring dialysis for their whole body is almost shutting down after what they've just gone through. They, they require nutrients and fluids through tubes and IV lines. They're on large doses of medication to stabilize their cardiovascular system. They're on strong medication to protect their immune system from their body rejecting the new tissue. They are still physically in ruins, but they've got new lungs. They have a new breath, and for the first time in years, their body is receiving the right amount of oxygen that it's been dying for, literally dying for. They'll often, in my experience, um, will barely need any oxygen by the time they come out of ICU. They might not have the strength to get up out of bed or even bring a spoon to their mouth at some point, but they don't actually need oxygen anymore. Inertia of the flesh is an interesting way I've heard this described, momentum of the flesh. Despite these new lungs, their entire body is still weak. Vulnerable, it struggles, but with these new lungs, they actually have a chance at surviving now, at building their strength, stabilizing their own cardiovascular system, being able to live life again. Uh, as physios, we would be the guys exercising them right up until the point of their surgery. I remember had a patient sitting on an exercise bike with 30 liters of oxygen going through, pedaling really slowly on the lowest gear for about five minutes before he was absolutely wrecked and needed to lay down again. Without those lungs, they can barely maintain their own strength despite eating well or doing the good work and the good exercise with us, taking all the right medication. But the rehab after that transplant, that's something else. The improvements in their strength, improvements in their mobility are profound with this new fuel tank they've got in them. They aren't perfect, they still have struggles, but they're alive. And it really makes me think about the difference between being dead to the condemnation of sin but still feeling the physical effects of sin in this world. We are right to God through the gift of Jesus, but we continue to face trial and temptation. We are still in our same bodies with our same memories, our same tendencies. So, what are we meant to do about it? Another translation of Romans chapter 6, verse 11, the one we started at, uh, instead of saying consider, says calculate. So, as we calculate, as we consider what being alive to God actually means, surely, surely we must respond. Right after the passage we read, a couple of verses down in 6 verse 13, we read this, this instruction. Do not present your members or your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's instructing us to actively resist, isn't he? Actively fight, actively change the things in our life. New lungs take time to change a patient's life. They're on a long path of rehab and recovery. They've got multiple teams of specialists working around them. They need to be proactive. They need to be proactive and disciplined with their health with their own medication, their diet, their exercise. Otherwise, the patient won't make a good recovery. Can you see the similarity between the Christian faith? All right, we're going to skip ahead to Romans. So if you, you've got your Bible, I bet you're glad because it's just so easy to flick those pages. We're in chapter 8 now of Romans, verse 5. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but for those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. As we focus our minds on the things of God and we're disciplined with ourselves, we too can experience a change in our lives as we too are on a path of recovery and rehabilitation. We need the same proactivity and discipline that's required for the patient. We need that same proactivity and discipline as the patient requires with our spiritual health. Like the patient needs their medication, their diet, their exercise, we need to read the Bible, we need to pray, and we need fellowship with other believers. And to work on all of this, God gives us some pretty good help. So last little jump through, we're in Romans 8 now, verse 11. Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God gives us his spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that makes us dead to sin. This is how we have so many day-to-day miracles in the church. People who are healed from pain, healed from trauma, that you just could never imagine they'd be able to get over or heal. Addiction and habits that are broken, that seem like they could never be stopped. We have those stories in our congregation. And that's thanks to the power of the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit that dwells in us. And it amazes me about our faith, about Christianity. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that makes us alive to God, is the same power that helps us with our day-to-day struggle with the sin in our life. So, just to summarise, our path was condemnation because of sin. An eternal life apart from our Creator. But now, like a patient after a lung transplant, we have a new outcome. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And it's not always easy, but we press on. We hold tight to Jesus and what he's done for us, his work of salvation, and we live in hope for the day that we're united with him in heaven. When we're free of the sin of this world, free of the sin that's in our own flesh. And as verse 5 in chapter 6 says, for we, if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. How good is that? So, this week, I would encourage you to read through Romans chapter 5, 6, 7 and 8. Do some spiritual exercise. Monday, 5, 6, Tuesday, 7, Wednesday, Thursday, 8. You can have Friday off if you want. Make it your goal this week to deepen your understanding of what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And I hope that the next time you hear uh, the preacher or someone speak those words, dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, that you'll be able to nod with a little bit more conviction and maybe even punch out an amen. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these instructions and this teaching. We pray for uh, everyone in this room, those who are considering the the tension between knowing that they're saved but feeling the difficulty that life still has for them, the sin 
that they can't break the sin that affects them. Lord, we pray that they will harness what we have in the Holy Spirit, the helper we have that you give us to fight those temptations, to fight our own flesh. And as we celebrate that we are alive in you, Lord, that we live in hope and look forward to what is to come. Pray for all those things. In Jesus' name, amen.